0: This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Fire is a fact of life. This week, we explore facts about fire and fire recovery with scientists from the California Native Plant Society and their instructional fire recovery guide.
1: In general, this process of quickly coming up with and providing a fire recovery guide is to bring together already existing information that a variety of other partner organizations have put together in separate documents and having it really accessible to the general public so that we can better recover and have our landscapes and our communities be resilient.
0: We'll be right back. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Just three months since California's November 2018 fires made global headlines, the great winter greening of our state is underway, and with it the urge to grow, in humans as in plants and animals. On the opposite side of the globe, people and ecosystems are holding their breath for the first rains of late autumn to put an end to their annual fire season. According to sources, 2018 marked the deadliest and most destructive wildfire season on record in the state of California. Moreover, fires in British Columbia burned more area than in any prior recorded year. And along with numbers of wildfires throughout the western United States, Australia, and South Africa, 2018 also saw the unusual incident of a wildfire north of the Arctic Circle. Fire is a fact of life. This week, we explore facts about fire and fire recovery with the California Native Plant Society and their instructional fire recovery guide. With the help of fire ecologists, experts, and researchers, CNPS members oversaw the guide as a compilation of current best fire recovery and fire prevention practices in a variety of arenas, home gardens and landscapes, wildlands, urban wildland interfaces, always keeping soil, animal, and plant communities, air quality, and watershed health in mind. We're joined in this conversation today by Greg Suba, Conservation Director for the CNPS, whose expertise includes forest management and fire, as well as by Julie Evans, Vegetation Science Director for CNPS, and who oversaw the development of the original fire guide. Julie and Greg join us today via Skype from CNPS headquarters in Sacramento. Welcome, Julie and Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get started by having each of you introduce yourself to the listeners. Let's
1: start with you, Julie. Thank you. My title here at the California Native Plant Society is Vegetation Program Director. And I work with a team of ecologists and other partners across the state to bring together data from across the state on our plant communities or what we call vegetation. And that's the natural vegetation assemblages that you find across the California, state of California landscapes. And we do this in various ways through managing data, mapping in GIS or geographic information systems, providing public workshops about the biodiversity and how rich our state is in vegetation resources. And we work towards better defining and understanding the types of vegetation in the state, the, the rarity thereof, and which ones are common and very important to make sure that we keep the biodiversity intact.
0: Greg, give us the same kind of background on your work there.
2: Sure, my name is Greg Suba and my title is Conservation Program Director at the California Native Plant Society. My job is to implement our organization's conservation policies in statewide planning and decision-making, and then also to coordinate volunteers that we have across the state and in northern Mexico and Baja California to preserve California's native flora. We work proactively to educate people about the beauties and wonders of our flora, the importance of protecting it. And then we also work in the regulatory arena to review projects.
0: From what I understand, Greg and Julie, you were both very instrumental on this original fire guide and both of your work, which makes sense from everything you've just described, overlaps necessarily with what it means to live with fire, what it means to work with fire, and what it means to hopefully recover as effectively as we can in the aftermath of, of a fire. Us interfacing with fire is part of your work.
1: Definitely. I think that's a great summary. And in general, I part of this process of uh, quickly coming up with and providing a fire recovery guide is to bring together already existing information that a variety of other partner organizations have put together in separate documents and having it really accessible to the general public in bite-sized ways so that we can better recover and have our landscapes and our communities be resilient having the landscape itself heal after a fire and the seeds that are already inherently in the soil and the seed bank to sprout back and naturally recover.
2: Yeah, I'll add uh, disturbance is a natural ecological process, Mm -hmm. whether it's a forest or a grassland or coast. And uh, resilience is um, an attribute that we apply to a natural system um, that reflects its, that ability, the, the ecosystem's ability to experience disturbance and maintain itself rather than, let's say, a forest burns down and we never see a forest come back. That would be an extreme case of a type conversion. We would say that would it's not exhibiting resilience. So resilience is the ability of an ecosystem to bounce back from a natural disturbance.
0: Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start us off with the fire recovery guide because we live in the state of California. Many other areas across the, the U.S. West, certainly, but around the globe, live in fire-adapted environments. I would like to sort of just go over a little bit of history of the kind of the mission of it and its target audience. Why, why did CNPS take on this job at that time?
1: With the North Bay fires, really hit home with many of us directly within CNPS, specifically the Nuns and Tubbs fires in uh, primarily in Sonoma, because some of our closest members of family lost their homes, um, including my own father. Additionally, our executive director used to work in a preserve right within Sonoma County, doing restoration ecology right in the landscape. And many of our colleagues were affected by the quickness of a fire moving through and then modifying and changing a landscape so, so quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think that we tend to forget because we have our family members who live in these landscapes that we have to remind everyone that fire is a natural part of the landscape. Even the fires that are are happening in the North Coast or the North Bay area or wherever, that this is a natural part of the landscape and realize where are the risks, what are the issues. And then as we recover, we want to better let people know how they can plant, what they can plant, when when or what not to plant, mm-hmm. and provide resources at people's fingertips in bite-sized pieces of information. I think that as we rebuild and think of landscaping, we really wanted to rush to get out this first edition of the guide and, and to provide something that's tangible for uh, everyday people, to consider the importance of the native plants that have evolved in these ecosystems over thousands of years and that we can hearken back to and how we can better live within.
2: Yeah well I'll just add um, it was Julie's leadership and her effort primarily that developed the guide and got it out the door so the reason that we implemented this guide is we got a lot of calls and questions from our members who were affected by the fire asking what should we do? What can we do? Those who were family, friends, neighbors wanted to heal. They wanted to do something to help heal the hurt of the people affected by the fire and also the land affected by the fire. And the people part of it, a salve in that respect is getting people to work, get their hands busy, get their bodies busy doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, For the land there's a bit of a conflict because in most cases, it's really more let it go, let the land heal itself. And so the guide is a science-based approach to what to do and what not to do in response to fire directed at those people who were affected and or those who wanted to do something to help the people and the areas affected by the fire.
0: Greg Suba is the Conservation Director for the California Native Plant Society. His expertise includes forest management and fire. Julie Evans is the Vegetation Science Director for CNPS. They're joining us today to explore fire recovery and fire preparedness. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jennifer, and it's the end of January. And this marks the end of three full years of creating, hosting, and airing Cultivating Place. With upwards of 10,000 subscribers and more than 200,000 downloads for the podcast, I feel so grateful and humble for this community of gardeners, garden and nature lovers, sharing, listening, and learning together. Thank you for being here. It's a new year and season of new beginnings we have a lot of ideas budding here at cultivating place and we need your support to help bring them to life if you want to be the gardener to our garden you can make a tax-deductible donation by clicking the link at the top right hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com and donating there your support in the form of a one-time gift or a recurring monthly donation makes these important conversations possible. Thank you. Now, back to our conversation on fire recovery with Greg Suba and Julie Evans of the California Native Plant Society. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today, we're speaking with Greg Suba and Julie Evans, scientists with the California Native Plant Society. We're speaking about fire ecology and some of the recommendations of the Fire Recovery Guide, which CNPS helped to compile with contributions from fire ecologists, experts, and researchers throughout the state. We're back after a break to hear more. Welcome. This dilemma of the immediate desire to do anything, to do something, to fix it, to make it stop, to make it feel better is so strong in the midst of the fire and in the immediate aftermath. And so I think you're, you're so right. Is A lot of what we have to do is just wait and see what the land is trying to do and then try and support it best we can. But that so is not your instinct. And it is absolutely cold comfort in the middle of an enormous fire and its aftermath, to be told. It's a natural process. It's part of the deal when thousands and thousands of people are displaced and homes are lost. And yet, two months later, you can see the land is already at work trying to take care of herself.
2: You know, it is. The message... the reply to the question, what can I do? When the reply is, just don't, just leave it alone. It'll take care of itself. It, I I understand what you're saying. It's almost dismissive and Yeah. but it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. You know, there are plants that are waiting for fire and will respond to it and will start the healing process on its own. Um, but you know, we don't operate at that time scale. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we want to see and work on the recovery right away, mm-hmm. and that's good. That that should be honored, and it's hard to do that and still deliver that message of nature does it in a little bit slower time frame than we're mm-hmm. comfortable with. There were people who were coming up and still do come up with wonderfully innovative ideas. Let's make tiny seed cakes and drop them from drones, and we can blanket the area and get it started. And, you know, that's great human ingenuity, but in the long run, those kinds of ideas, as as genuine and heartfelt as they are, would wind up doing more damage uh, than just leaving it and letting it recover on its own. Now, there are some things that we can do, uh, like the oak recovery project that we worked on, the reoking. Um, there are things to do, but it needs to be measured and science-based, and that's the approach that we took with the guide.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that um was so impressed with was how it brought together so many voices from across the state who, if you aren't familiar with all of them, you know, I think many of us are familiar with one or two, and sometimes it can feel like you're getting information from different different sources and they might sort of conflict or you don't really understand. And so that I thought was, was a wonderful aspect of the FIRE Recovery Guide. I would like to move to Julie talking a little bit about how you went about collecting those voices and then putting them together into what was a digestible piece of information understanding as Greg just articulated so nicely that so much of this is is predicated on the idea that we need to kind of lean in to our relationship with the land and trust that the land knows what it's doing if we don't get in its way. Very well
1: put. My task given was to help put together a response team immediately and get a guide out within two to four weeks of time, which I knew was not possible. (laughs) So we scaled back and uh, looked at, well, what in an outline, what do we really want to get across to our chapter members, the general public, and who does have those pieces of information that we can put together and and also, as you say, to to wade through all the different types of knowledge people have and in their specific landscape, whether that be in a uh, densely forested area versus a open grassland area, and try to wade through all the different types of information and to get something put together into this guide. And, I went to some of our great volunteers and partners within CNPS, uh, including people from the Bay Area. I went to those in the federal and state agencies who have put out a lot of great resources and honed in on those that could really, in a short amount of time, provide us input and in their own words and or by doing research across the voluminous amounts of information that already exists Mm -hmm. by a variety of different sources. So it was wonderful to have someone from the natural resources conservation service, Rich Casale. He was amazing and he has been in so many different meetings with hundreds of people, landowners, Uh, giving them information, handouts, on what to do after the fire, and here's how you deal with soil erosion, and here are the top 10 things that you should do uh, post-fire and or through the winter. And he was an amazing resource, and we rested a lot of our review of different portions of the guide uh, through Rich. And another amazing individual was from the California Chaparral Institute, Mm -hmm. Rick Halsey. He provided great information on uh, the response to fire and how Chaparral responds after fire and was a really great resource of bringing together disparate information and also to try to break down things into understandable information. And then really local people, I would say people from Sonoma County, for example, the Laguna de Santa Rosa Foundation we had Sarah Gordon and she not only works for that foundation, she also ha- is an ardent CNPS volunteer through our Milo Baker chapter along with her colleague Wendy Trowbridge. They they helped in focus on certain sections in particular, the invasive species section for example. and what are those invasive species that can carry fire themselves and or that we need to respond to after the fire, as well as do you seed or do you not seed? What, mm. what to do after a fire, and that was amazing. And then we had State Department of Fish and Wildlife colleagues here in our Sacramento area through the uh, Vegetation Classification and Mapping Program. We had really wonderful Folks from Nomad Ecology provide us information on the rare species and vegetation community types in the region, mm-hmm. both Heath Bartosh and Brian Peterson. We brought together a great team of people and in a short amount of time. And I think one of the things that's
0: illustrated there is how many people are at work in the field, on the ground, across our region, studying and learning about and sharing information about fire as a part of our process and life here in California. When I'm looking down the table of contents, this definitely is coming to readers and homeowners from a native plant and landscape perspective, but all of these things are true whether or not you have a strong sense of native plants. There are recommendations and questions and answers about soil, about immediate post-fire checklist, about this the the question of seeding, the question of how soon will you know a tree is dead? The like, how safe is the water? These are all the kinds of questions that I've been getting from gardeners across the region. And so, this guide contains a lot of helpful information, no matter what perspective you're coming from.
1: Yes, I do think, and it's wonderful to hear that uh, you feel so as well. I I think that as we were putting together the guide, while there are so many things that you can include, uh, we were limited also on space, and so we had to. Be realistic within our budget that we had and of time and of money to, to produce this guide and print it out and mail it out. I, we had to look at, well, what are the most important themes to cover? Honestly, the initial post-fire checklist is really, really helpful. And a wonderful colleague, Mary Petrilli, did a great job at taking the work that we compiled together and then making it be a really usable tool, the top things to consider and to think about. And then as you get in into the deeper amounts of information from soil erosion and, and tips to deal with soil erosion, that's the most immediate thing post-fire that you have to deal with. Soil that things are going to sprout from, as well as uh, for stabilizing the landscape. And mm-hmm. so we took it as approach to a... What do you need immediately? And then as you go through the process of recovering from fire through deciding even how the table of contents was uh, arranged. That initial uh, checklist was very helpful.
0: And I think it still is helpful in my region and the fires down south that are still so fresh and raw in terms of, first of all, be safe. Second of all, start working on securing your soil. And first thing to do in that way is to stay off it as much as you possibly can so that you don't disturb it more. Um, So that minimizing foot traffic equipment and disturbance, sometimes that's not possible. Um, And I'm thinking here, for instance, of the people whose houses weren't burned, but whose properties were burned. And Um, My partner, John, that that was his scenario, and it burned quite hot in some areas. And as you say, it continued burning for for several days. He lost his bridge. He lost his water system. So his immediate concern prior to the rains that we got within 10 days of the fire being put out uh, was to get his water system back in place so that he could live on the land. So sometimes things aren't avoidable. But if you know to be as careful as you can,
1: that gives you a good place to start. Definitely, and our colleague Rich Casale had a great quote of just how how much a single raindrop can uh, impact the soil if it's uh, unprotected. And so, that's obviously when you're talking about steeper sloped soil, you know, soil. Mm-hmm. Though having there be the leaf litter that's fallen. Um, in the forest that just natural protection of the leaves that have fallen you wouldn't even imagine that being important but it slows down the flow of water by disrupting a you know a fast moving uh you know rainfall and uh, it was a Really, he had some great nuggets of information that we tried to put within the guide in in different ways, but especially within that soil erosion control chapter. His method was, let's slow down here and let's peel back trying to do too much. And instead, let's look at really, what are your issues? And each and every land uh, owner has their own issues that need to be addressed, definitely, though... We don't need to immediately reseed, for example, or we don't need to immediately Mm. put down mulch. Another thing was many, many people uh, across the North Bay were given quotes to put in straw wattles or this, that, the other, when it was really unnecessary, he found a lot of times. And it was just, you know, you need to slow down movement if there is even going to be any movement. Um, but it's more just protecting the soil and then immediate concerns of of runoff. One of the other important parts of the guide that I see is that there is a, um, a, a connection to our, our our native plants that can stabilize the soil so much better than anything else because that's what they're adapted to do. And having the message that even if a tree is burned and potentially even dead, if it's not of a hazard of falling down to keep the tree and not cut it down because the roots underground are still stabilizing the soil. And that is a really important message that we try to get across is that with the care and recovery of trees that sometimes just leaving it intact, even if it's a dead tree, can be of more good than anything else.
0: Mm Yeah. Yeah. I think that is critically important, and has we, we keep learning more and more about the importance of large woody debris left in stream beds and in open spaces if, if you can.
2: There's a lot of um, back and forth about post-fire treatment, particularly in national forests. When it comes to how much wood to leave behind And really, we're now talking about areas where people aren't living. So maybe it's not so relevant to this conversation and and about the recovery guide. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are some who would say uh, we should leave every stick in place because that's the way nature intended it to be. Once it's burned, leave it where it is. And there are others, um, often those tasked with um, fighting the fires, uh, that Uh, or or suppressing fires uh, for safety reasons, they would say, if we don't clear it out, then another fire that comes through, even in these burned areas, are going to be equally high intensity, uh, which is what we're trying to reduce, the intensity of the fires. They'll be equally high intensity because we've left all of this uh, downed wood on the ground. So you know, that's, that gets to one of these places where there's still a lot of back and forth on what the best approach is. And I think the solution to that is, is really something that we parse, whether we're talking about wood left on the ground near communities and around our homes, or if it's wood left on the ground out someplace in the back country
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: that is uh, farther from communities.
0: One of the things that I heard, and I think this speaks to the re oak program that you have undertaken there at CNPS, is the idea, once again, of coming back to patients and observation, uh, is that it's sometimes very difficult to tell what is dead yet for quite some time. Talk a little bit about that.
2: You're correct. And, um, um, you know, it gets back to the point I raised before about. Um, requiring patients where, um, where there's little patients to be had. And um, Julie, I don't know if you want to add anything more to that.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, depending on how close, you know, whether it be larger trees or smaller trees, or even sometimes larger bushes, I think that an assessment is always useful to look at, well, what, what kind of Importance are they still providing? Do they still have foliage uh, though some of it might have been lost? Um, is there just a little bit of scorching around the tree trunks or are they extremely uh, um, impacted in the the main tree trunks and uh, have the trees been completely hollowed out or? Uh, I think that an assessment of trees sometimes is really needed by a professional forester and or a consulting arborist, as we noted in the in the recovery guide that getting someone immediately out to your land you know as soon as you can is always helpful to assess which which trees do really need to be removed because they're causing a hazard. They might fall on your home or um, or other issues that might result. Though I think that a lot of times it's surprising that a tree, while it's completely burned, uh, it might still have an inner bark that is intact. And many, many trees in California, especially oaks, have a really thick, what we call cambium layer. And they're adapted to repeat fires. And some of our hardwoods, like oaks, can re-sprout from the base or from branches after fire. If something looks like it's dead, it might actually not be, and its roots might still be alive as well. One thing that I often do when I'm in the landscape and I'm taking a hike with friends or family, and whether that's in Marin County or anywhere else, you know, that just happened, honestly, the, the previous weekend, where I had family members asking, "Well, should we keep these? We're doing some landscaping." Uh, I, I I have them, you know, diagnose the landscape really and have them look at the tree trunks and be like, "Look, can you can you sh- can you look at and, and see what's happened to these trunks?" And sometimes you can see see signs of these trees that have already gone through fires because they have burned scars or they're re-sprouted from the base and there's multiple trunks of one oak tree, things like that. So to bring it back to reality to people that we have these fires that repeat over maybe decades of time and we might forget that, you know, we're living within um, natural landscapes and, and putting our homes there and that these trees have adapted to fire. I mean, honestly, though, there's obviously other trees that are fire-sensitive and that are, you know, many forests that have been killed by the hot fires that have gone across the landscape, too, and Mm -hmm. that, you know, there is management that needs to be done uh, as well. Greg Suba is the Conservation Director for California Native Plant Society. His expertise
0: includes forestry management and fire. Julie Evans is the Vegetation Science Director for CNPS. They're joining us today to explore fire recovery and fire preparedness. Their knowledge and advice is outlined in the fire recovery guide that they and the CNPS helped to compile after extensive 2017 fires in Northern California. The guide has a very helpful list of top 10 things to do immediately post-fire. Of course, these include being safe first, Other recommendations include minimizing foot traffic, slowing down soil movement, especially into waterways, clearing and checking drainage systems, and reducing erosion by mulching with only seed-free materials. It talks about whether or not to seed and how and when to decide to prune or cut back vegetation. We'll be back to talk more. Since the campfire here last fall, I've had so much correspondence about the fire, with so many of you writing in with questions, sending in help for the gardener's relief event that I was part of with nurseries here in my region, even gardeners from other fire-prone regions writing to send hope, from Idaho, Colorado, Australia, and beyond. Fire is a fact of life everywhere, both it's constructive and destructive aspects. I thank again every one of you who wrote with solace, with help, with presence. As to the questions, they ranged so broadly, the answers are often so circumstantially specific in turn. If you sent in specific questions, Please take time to look through the fire recovery guide put out by CNPS and to read this week's show notes, where I outline some of the most common questions with links to recommended sources for answers as they unfold and evolve. Patience is hard right now, I know, but to look around and see Mother Nature regenerating all around us, these are lessons all around us. Lessons like... John noticing where he'd trimmed back grassy growth and duff at the bases of his mature oaks. These oaks seemed less likely, in the fire, to fall prey to the base burn that toppled many other oaks around his property. Trees that otherwise showed no signs of a canopy fire or other damage. Lessons like the resilience of the redbuds and the buckeyes, who didn't seem to burn as hot or as completely whereas the lessons of the total fire danger of the invasive blackberry patches, patches that we will work to keep down more aggressively in the future. What is your land showing you right now? What lessons are the many inhabitants offering up? The ants and gophers post-fire have been very active here, tunneling and aerating. It's fascinating to see them stirring up life in their own way. I'd love to hear lessons you're learning. Send us notes or comments or anecdotes at cultivatingplace at gmail.com. Now, back to our conversation on fire recovery with Greg Suba, conservation director, and Julie Evans, vegetation science director, both with the California Native Plant Society. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Today we're speaking with Greg Suba and Julie Evans with the California Native Plant Society about fire ecology and some of the recommendations of their fire recovery guide. Welcome back. The page nine of the fire recovery guide has a really useful, very visual, graphic flowchart of decision-making post-fire, which I think... um, everybody should take a look at. And it is interesting to see how many of the flow chart decisions end in no action. Just sit still and let it heal. I will say at this point in the conversation that the fire recovery guide is free and available as a PDF download from the CNPS website. If you just type in your browser, you know, CNPS Fire Recovery Guide, you will find it. I will certainly post a link to it on this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. Everybody should take a look at it. It's incredibly useful and thorough. I'd love to go over a little bit about you as scientists and ecologists and information gatherers for the rest of us. What are some of the key lessons that maybe have you You have learned in this process. you have learned um, just maybe in the last five to ten years, there's always a lot of kind of dramatic talk after a big fire about what we didn't do or what we did do or what we didn't understand, or how it's all climate change, or these are different kinds of fires. What as we sort of settle out a little bit, what what comes across about fire and our preparedness and recovery? Now going forward, let's start with you Greg.
2: Okay. Um well, in the long view, I think um th- something that things that we've known for a while but keep uh but that get refreshed in our in our full view after these fire events. Um there are a few things I think that are takeaways. One is um, prevention and keeping safe begins with where and how we decide to build houses in fire prone landscapes to begin with. And, and that's a tough decision-making process and one that ultimately, um, we need to do. And, you know, who's going to referee those decisions, I think is, is a major topic that's come up since last year's wildfires. Um, there's a, uh, Uh, a balance I think that we need to come up with between um local city and county governments Mm -hmm. approving developments and and uh houses in um high fire areas across the state um, versus state government coming in uh or overseeing those decisions and um One thing's for sure, if we continue the status quo, we'll see more development in areas where we shouldn't put it and we, you know, see uh, more buildings in harm's way where, you know, we should start making hard decisions now to prevent those kinds of things in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I think is a takeaway is um, prevention really begins with people and the decisions we make following from that, once we have built-in areas, it comes down to um, making sure those structures are as safe as they can be uh, against fire by hardening those structures from embers. So many of the the tragedies that we've seen um, are fires that start actually from inside the house and burn outwards because of embers that have gotten inside the house. So, um, you know, there are There are some steps that uh, can be taken in terms of building materials and practices for new homes, how how we build them out of what materials and the designs, the roofing design, the roofing material, um, uh, and things like this. And then how do we retrofit existing homes? So folks who are currently living in areas that could be affected by fire, What can we do to those homes now and how much does it cost and how do people pay for it? Um, I think this year, uh, particularly in our state legislature, we're going to see new bills put forth and new laws being proposed um, and new regulations, not so much that have to do with forestry itself, like we saw last year. Um, for instance, well, anyway, last year there were bills that had to do more with vegetation and forests themselves. This year, I think it's going to be more about uh, people and um, fire safety, where and how we decide to build, um, and then uh, retrofitting existing homes and structures to uh, for fire prevention. Mm-hmm. Um those are some long term takeaways, things that we've known um but are sort of more up in front up and set front and center today uh post fire.
0: Mm-hmm. Um yeah. That really rings true for, for our area, certainly. Um I think most people are aware that the town of paradise was was just leveled. Um and the the, the, fire, the campfire circled around the city of Chico and in those areas where the city of Chico has allowed for sort of sprawl development rather than infill development, you saw clearly that the, the buffer, without the buffer, we cannot be surprised when fire is right on top of the, the township w- when we allow development in this way. And, and that sounds harsh, but it is also true and And I know that the idea of you know defensible space and preparedness from an individual homeowner perspective is very, very helpful. It You saw whole houses that were saved in the middle of a fire region because they had done all of the things that they they knew to do. They had the wide barrier between their house and a lot of a lot of fuel buildup. They, had cleaned, they had watered, they had you know they had done their their job. That doesn't guarantee your house will be saved, but it certainly improved your chances. One of the things that was really interesting, and then we'll we'll move to you um, and the lessons you want to share, Julie. But one of the things that was really interesting to me is how many of the the plant types that I have always been told were sort of known fire hazards or known ladder fuel. Didn't appear to work that way as I walk the landscape now um, that Manzanita wasn't any more necessarily prone to burn completely than than something else. The gray pine is another example of you know that they're supposed to be they're held up as being terrible fire hazards and they did not necessarily become fire torches in the landscape. They were often as resilient as anything. Um, some of the hardest burn that I have seen is the areas where we had a ton of invasive blackberry, the Himalayan blackberry. That burned super hot. It was, it's just really interesting to, to look at the plants and think about what happened and why did it happen that way. It's fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. One of the things that I was going to say right before you talked, and I think it plays into this, is the flammability of certain plants more than others is really part of the issue and people just need to be aware as they um, evaluate their own home and what they have around their in their landscape from what are the main trees or shrubs do they have immediately right close to their house uh, that they might want to consider removing when you think about that it's which ones are flammable which ones are going to combust and fly and then land on your roof Mm -hmm. and I think that that and the proper thinning as you say and having the defensible space I think that it's not that we want to have completely devoid of vegetation but Mm -hmm. I think that creating less of a hazard Mm -hmm. of the removing of flammable fuel uh, trees and or shrubs and having lower growing Um, tolerant, drought tolerant, uh, and also less flammable um, is very important, and that um, are slower, slower burning. Mm -hmm. And I think that we don't want to be removing whole landscapes. There are fire adapted landscapes that will burn hot, and they obviously do. They're adapted to to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, such as the Manzanita or the Chemise or whatever. I think that that uh, it's more of assessing what you already have and then what to bring back into your landscape not only because it's drought tolerant you don't have to give it so much water it's easy to manage and maintain but it also has a great strategy to, to survive after fire and or it also allows for wildlife and I think that The plants that we plant are beautiful sometimes, but they also can provide, whether it be great shade, great uh, um, um, flowers for pollinating insects and um, other creatures. I think that it's it's about the ecosystem or it's about the the connection that we have um, of plants with all other living beings. And I think that providing that lens of thinking about native plants in the landscape in your own gardens and and really being more selective about what um, is important to keep in the landscape, and and why we're selecting those things, and why they might be more expensive to go and buy a native plant at the garden center or at a native plant sale or whatever, that it's worth it in the long run because those are the plants that um, are drought tolerant and that are, um, imp- you know, can allow a beautiful um, wildlife space for you as well. Yeah. Are there other things either of
0: you would like to add before we go?
2: I think Julie touched on it, began talking about it a bit. Um, you know, in the last uh, few decades, what we've come to understand is that um, our that our Smokey the Bear message has been off point and that nationally, our fire suppression efforts in forests have been a mistake overall. And I don't mean that as an impeachment on the work that firefighters do or what they're directed to do, um, not that at all. It's just that ecologically, we've severed the uh, the natural process of fire in forests um, through a century of suppression. And so to, to solve that, it's uh, it's sort of a contradiction message, but for forests and forest lands in California, this the key solution, a key solution to the catastrophic fires is actually putting more fire back onto the landscape. Mm-hmm. And um, that just sounds crazy sometimes when I say it to myself, but... Managing fires, letting them go in the wilderness areas and back countries uh, when they're, they're started naturally by lightning and they're far away from communities, that's, that's one way to get there. Putting more prescribed fire, prescribed burning on the landscape is another way to uh, solve the problem of, look, fire's gonna happen whether we want it or not. It's our choice of what kind of fire do we want? Can we manage it in smaller bits? And prescribed fire would allow us to do that, especially closer to where we live. Now, added to that is, an, is a problem that we can't just go out and start doing that right now because uh, there's too much ladder fuel underneath the canopy. Many areas, forested land areas, have an overly dense understory of smaller trees. So we first need to do, and this is coming from a native plant conservation organization, We need around our homes and communities. We're going to need to remove some of those, some of that native vegetation, to reduce the fuel level to a point where we can apply prescribed fire more frequently in forested lands. So that's one thing I want to get across, and Mm -hmm. that CNPS is on board with that. Um, That uh, that's one way to increase the amount of prescribed fire that we need to restore back onto the landscape. Mm-hmm. Now, in the same breath, I have to say that where we need more fire in forested landscapes in California, we actually, we need less fire in the Chaparral landscapes, particularly in Southern California and in and the lower foothills of Sierra Nevada, where Chaparral dominates the landscape. There we're seeing too much fire and it's converting over time those biodiverse landscapes into something else, usually, typically invasive, non-native grasslands. Mm -hmm. Um, So my takeaway there is, apart from making people-centered decisions about where we build and how we build in fire-prone areas, we need to recognize that we've got a fire deficit in forest lands and excess fire in Chaparral. So those are the major challenges that CNPS is grappling with. We're trying to, uh, you know, we work with others on how to find solutions to those. And I think we're at that today in 2019. We've recognized the problem and we're working towards solutions across sectors to solve those problems.
0: Mm -hmm. Julie?
2: And I
1: I wanna add a, a little more detail, obviously that we have these very interesting plants that uh, sprout back up in the landscape in areas such as chaparral, post fire, that might be stored in the seed bank. And so it's an opportunity for for some of us who like to see wildflowers in the spring with enough rain that there are these beautiful wildflower displays that we can all enjoy. And that's a uh, of delight, especially to our rare plant treasure hunters that Mm -hmm. have been going around in the North Bay and South, um, South Bay of San Francisco areas. The other thing that I wanted to mention is, is, uh, tackling invasive plants is another part of CNPS and many, many other partners who are working to target those that are the biggest and most invasive, uh, plants that cause, uh, long-term harm whether that be completely changing the landscape like with you know rundodonax or giant reed grass in riparian areas or broom and other perennials and shrubs in treed to shrubby landscapes in, in our grasslands so i think that that's another part that we all need to target those plant unwanted plants that we have brought into the into the landscape that we need to continue to battle yeah. Uh, so I think that those are other things.
2: One last thing, uh, if people want more information, we do have a website, cnps.org forward slash fire hyphen recovery.
0: Excellent. And I very much appreciate both of your time and the ongoing dynamic guide that you are you are working on and with to to get out the next edition because I I think we all are learning as we go those of us who aren't in it professionally clearly more than you all but to know that there's someone out there thinking about it looking at it working on it talking about it collaborating on the best information to get out to the public is that's great for us so thank you for your work thank you thank you very much Julie Evans is the Vegetation Science Director for CNPS. She oversaw the development of the original fire guide we discussed today. As she mentioned, a second edition of the guide is underway. Greg Suba is the Conservation Director for CNPS, and his expertise includes forestry management and fire. Regarding current fire management practices in California, he notes... I think it's important that we look to Florida and the Southeast United States for how they have handled putting fire intentionally on the landscape for ecological and safety reasons. It is now part of their annual cycle, and we in California and the West need to get there too. The Fire Recovery Guide was created with contributions from fire ecologists, experts, and researchers in this field across California and beyond. The guide goes through some essential and timely questions and answers and steps to take immediately post-fire, as well as to prepare your home and grounds to diminish the impacts of fire. A link to the current guide discussed today is in this week's show notes at cultivatingplace.com. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of Mer State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from the Fire Recovery Guide, see this week's show notes at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who makes this program possible. Listeners, donors, and supporters, we couldn't do this without you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place.
2: I'm Jennifer Jewell.